Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, are you recovered from your bug? I am. Thank you. I'm very sorry that I had to miss some of last week's episode. And it wasn't just a bug, I'm afraid. It was the bug. I very unfashionably, or maybe fashionably late, got COVID, you know, sort of two to three years after everybody else. Actually, your first time? I think so, yeah. And what I thought was, gosh, I've had lots of jabs and this is not a bad strain and all of that. But it's not much fun, is it? Not much fun at all. And one of the worst things is you don't really feel much like reading, do you? No, not really. In fact, I just I slept most of the time, if we're being brutally honest, which I am. Listeners, I did, you know, ever working. You remember a few weeks ago, we had a really interesting conversation about Josephine Tay. And I said, she's the one to go to. The audiobooks are fantastic if you're feeling not quite up to reading with your eyes. You can listen with your ears. Mm. I had read that Josephine Tay before that, but actually the whole week is now a bit of a blur, so I can't. I genuinely can't tell you what I read, I'm afraid. <laughs> I can't give you any um, insights into that. Well, hot from our fantastic discussion that we had with Margaret Drabble and Joe Swift, which you can find in our new Turning Leaves podcast, I think you have some gardening advice for me. Oh, yes. Though you can't blame Margaret Drabble and Joe Swift for this. This is just me. The reason I remembered it is because I said this maybe a year or even two years ago. And then one of our, I just mentioned it in passing, and one of uh, you lovely listeners wrote in and said, oh, I enjoyed the podcast. And by the way, thanks for the tip about the potatoes. I'd forgotten. What's the tip about the potatoes, Lucy? tip about the potatoes, Alex, is that you need to get your earlies in by St. Patrick's Day because it's actually an Irish colleague on the allotment told me you've got to get them in by St. Patrick's Day and out by July the 12th. It's absolutely true. And I haven't got mine in yet. So well, that's all right because as we speak, it's not St. Patrick's Day. You have a few days left. Yep, yep, that's true. So if that's the sort of thing you like doing, listeners, get out there and get your spots in the ground and then have a good old knees up for St. Patrick's Day if you like. <laughs> well, I have to say my knees up is beyond all imaginings it's it's gone special this year because it's somebody in my family's milestone birthday oh wonderful and on the Sunday it's Mother's Day and people are actually flying in from the UK to Ireland where I live to have St Patrick's Day birthday party and Mother's Day combined so how much time do you think I've got to get my potatoes in uh not so much no you're not going to have maybe much time for potatoes you have to spend more time on your humans Funny you should say that, because I think this is what we've got on the show this week, isn't it? We've got something about humans and plant life. We do indeed. Go on, tell us all about it. Well, coming up on this week's show, we're going to discuss how intelligent, how sensitive, how aware plants are. And a new biography of George Eliot focuses on the role that marriage, and indeed non-marriage, played in her life and in her fiction. But first, you're probably aware of a fairly recent wave of books looking at consciousness and intelligence. Who has it, what sort, and how it differs from our own. This is with reference to octopuses, computers, and even fungi. This last may seem surprising, and yet The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wollleben was a worldwide success a few years ago and extremely influential, introducing to most of us the idea that trees communicate, protect their young, and support their community. So not such a jump from trees and fungi to plants. 
This week, Helen Bynum, who has written extensively about plants herself, reviews a book for us called Planta Sapiens, Unmasking Plant Intelligence by Paco Calvo with Natalie Lawrence. So we are delighted that Helen is here to tell us about some of its remarkable claims. Helen, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, we're delighted. Usually when we're talking about plants, we're just sort of asking each other how our dahlias are and things like that. But this is a bit more scientific, isn't it? Slightly more high level, isn't it, Lucy? (laughs) It is. I'm going to try and keep up. We're going to get Helen to raise our game. What are the claims made in this book? What does Paco Calvo want to convince us of? Well, to a certain extent, I guess he wants to convince us that perhaps the dahlias want to ask us how we are. Because what he wants to do is break down this strict idea of how organisms shape up in terms of their consciousness and their awareness of the environment. And he wants to argue that actually plants have sentience. Plants are aware of their environment and they react and respond to it in very, very sophisticated ways that are analogous to the way our nervous systems allow us to interact with the environment. It's quite a claim, I think. Mm, The more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, this is an absolutely enormous claim. You tell us about a party trick that he does with a mimosa to try and convince people of kind of, you know, a corner of this. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so this is is something that he's used extensively, I think, in just um, demonstrating how ideas of consciousness and sentience are uh, applicable across the species divide. And so what he does is he uses a bell jar a sensitive plant, which is one of those ones that um, when you touch it, that the leaves all drop down and then the a sprig of, with the leaves on it drops down towards the stem. And he has calculated very carefully how much ether you need to put the plant to sleep. And so what he does is when he's giving a talk, and he's I think he's a great publicist for his own work and for this big idea that he wants to get across, is he sets this up on the corner of the desk on the stage or whatever, and he anaesthetizes the plant and people don't really know what he's doing and he puts the glass bell jar over the plant so that it can't interact with the atmosphere and then later on he'll casually ask somebody to come down from the audience lift up the lid of the bell jar and get them to touch the plant and the plant doesn't respond because it's been anaesthetized just like we would be anaesthetized with ether and so he's saying look at what these organisms do. They react in the same way that we react to the same chemicals. Mm, And I suppose the idea of being put to sleep presupposes that you have been awake. Exactly. It presupposes that you're um, susceptible to the same kinds of chemicals that we are susceptible to or bacteria are susceptible to or any other sort of animal is susceptible to. And so this is where he wants to chip away at the idea that everything is very separate And actually, it shows the same sort of responses to the same sort of chemicals. I suppose one of the things that immediately springs to mind as a response to that anecdote is what the words awake and anaesthetize and consciousness and sentience, obviously, really mean. Because he doesn't claim that the plant thinks it's put to sleep in the same way that that afterwards, when it comes back to life, we might think, oh, I was anaesthetized and now I'm awake, does he? No, he's not arguing for that self-reflective sense of consciousness. Mm. He's not making outlandish claims, but what he's trying to do is, I mean, the semantics are actually really important to Calvo. And he's very well aware that some of the words that we use can trap us and tie us into knots. And so 
in some ways, what he's calling for is a, and this is where the, his philosophy really comes into play, is that we need to think about what these words mean across very different organisms, rather than the sort of comfortable way we've got used to thinking about them just for ourselves. Mm. We have a problem with our our definitions, because when we say consciousness, we just sort of assume that we mean more or less like us, whereas in fact, that's not what he means at all. Exactly. And that's the rub, really, is, is where do you take your reference point from? So he wants to argue that and other people who are involved in this um, sort of reorientation, the way we think about consciousness, they want to say that actually that one of the fundamental problems is using human beings as the gold standard of consciousness. And that mm. if we stop doing that and look for what consciousness might mean in other contexts, we start to untie ourselves from this knot. So do you think it is like an extension of the other work that I mentioned, you know, when people sort of, well, recently there's been a lot of work on octopuses, you know, because they're so very different. And do you think this is a sort of logical extension of that kind of work? Yes, I think it is, because I think what Calvo is trying to say and what people like um, Peter Godfrey Smith tried to say about the cephalopods is that there may be other ways of thinking about a neural system that isn't just modelled on the mammalian brain, which, again, we sort of take as the gold standard, don't we? We tend to think of ourselves still, I think, at the top of this old concept of the great chain of being, where everything sort of moves upwards towards the greatest achievement, which is humanity. But actually, there may be different ways for evolution to have created a way to interact with the environment, because in a sense, that's what's going on here. What he's talking about and what other people are talking about is ways that organisms interact with the environment and how they're aware of it and how they use that awareness to make themselves as well adapted to their circumstances as, as they might be. And presumably the goal, I mean, obviously the research is its own goal, but the goal in shifting that goalpost of understanding is to improve the way that we interact with the environment in the widest sense. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's also part of this sort of uh, claim to, and very important claim, I think, to try and get over this hump of what's called plant blindness, the idea that we that we don't see the green substrate of life, basically, that we automatically look for the animal in the environment or the butterfly or I don't know. We sort of take the plants for granted and we almost look beyond them and this idea of plant blindness has been kicking around for quite a time now. And, and it does have some, I think, some, some serious ideas behind it. But it also means that we tend to undervalue those aspects of the environment. And, and he's very keen that we move away from this sort of ranking and giving things more credence just because they're a plant or something else. And obviously, in a way, what he wants to do is bring up the profile of plants in our understanding. And that's I think that's the other way that this book fits into other books that have been written in terms of trying to not only look at, at the sort of ideas of how diverse neural networks and neural pathways and brains can be, but also how much we need to be cognizant and aware of and appreciative of other ways that organisms live in the environment and particularly for him it's the green stuff it's it's plants i wonder if i mean it's got all sorts of ramifications as we said but it's presumably also got conservation ramifications because the plant blindness thing as you say if people just go oh there's a field with some green stuff in you know or you can get down to exactly what's in and what each plant is doing and what it provides and what it takes and you know all of those things if you can raise that level of attention 
then we can sort of manage it better, look after it better, stop killing it, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm taking a master's degree in ecology at the moment and I went to a seminar today and it was about giraffes and, and how they're going to cope with climate change. And, you know, it comes back so much to, to habitat. I think it's really important that we think about where organisms live and think about conserving that as well as conserving the organism. And obviously giraffes are fantastically beautiful, amazing creatures, and it's very easy to want to conserve those. But are we really excited about conserving one of their main plant foods, which is, I mean, they've been reclassified, but they're commonly known as acacia trees. But whatever acacias have become are, are really important for giraffe food sources. You know, in a sense, the question is also about what is climate change going to do to those trees? It's that sort of always just gently nudging and saying, let's think about the bigger picture. Let's think about the environment and let's think about plants in the environment because they are so often a direct source of nutrition, but they're the bottom of the food pyramid. And we do absolutely know this, don't we? We know that habitat destruction is a direct threat to, you know, directly contributes to endangering species and potential extinction. But I guess the next step is to really understand what that means, is to understand how the plants themselves are organising themselves, how they are reacting to more environmental change. Absolutely. And to not just see them as something that is supporting something else, but to recognise their worth for themselves. I mean, I think he's also, I think Calvo's also waving a flag for just genuinely appreciating plants for what they are within themselves. And one of the ways he wants to do this is by asking us, his reader, to step back and say, you know, what do you really understand about the way of plant functions and can I tempt you to think about that in a very different way? One of the other sort of aspects that you say he studies is it circumnutation. That's right, yeah. Which is what Darwin was also studying as well, wasn't he, with plants that we're probably all pretty familiar with. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Darwin was fascinated by climbing plants. I mean, it's amazing how much in biology and zoology and, and ecology comes back to dear old Charles Darwin. He was a phenomenal thinker. And Darwin was very interested in, in the way different sorts of plants would twist themselves around a support. And obviously that allows them to exploit a different part of the ecological landscape and, you know, climb up through trees or and reach the light that way. So obviously all plants need light for photosynthesis. So he was very interested in exploring those kinds of mechanical interactions. And, and what Calvo wants to do is basically argue that growth is not just growth, it's also a form of movement. So we typically think of plants as rooted. That's one of the problems they face. They're, they're not dynamic in the way that the giraffe is going to charge across the savannah or, or run in, into the thicket of trees. You know, they're rooted beings. And... I think it's important to Calvo to show how actually they, through their locomotion and growth, demonstrate that they are conscious sentient beings. And what he's done is he's taken Darwin's old fascination with this process of twisting around, and he's actually exploring what goes on at a very, very fine level in terms of the ion exchanges and the uh, chemical exchanges and how one part of the plant communicates with another part of the plant. And typically, very importantly, how the very close growth tip of the plant 
is responding and sort of sensing the environment and then sending information back to another part of the plant. And that, in a way, the sort of argument against Calvo's ideas is, well, this is just a very, very sophisticated feedback loop, which we've known about for a long period of time with Charles Darwin. But actually, Calvo wants to say, no, we need to reinterpret this growth as locomotion, as movement, and to see it as something that's much more active than just a feedback loop, something that's much more fine-tuned and is basically about consciousness. Climbing plants, I've seen them, we've actually, I've got one, I got it as a child's toy a while ago and we never actually managed to do it, but you can get a thing where you get a bean to, to go up a maze. I mean, they can navigate mazes, can't they? Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of amazing ability to sense the environment and feel where they're going to go and to make the choice about the best way to grow. I mean, that's the other thing. I'm using words like choice, which will really irritate some people because they'll say, no, no, a plant doesn't make choices. Calvo wants to argue that the kinds of processes that are going on inside the plant as it does circumutate are actually choice-based. See, I think they clearly are because, as any gardener knows, you find that out when you try to make them do something else <laughs> that they presumably don't, <laughs> they want, don't to. want to. And Helen, I'm delighted that you sort of finally, you know, you're getting to the language that Lucy and I can understand as we often sort of lament, you know, the training of the sweet peas, for example. But when you look at a sweet pea growing and you see the tendrils and the way that it will grow around certain structures and won't grow around others and reach its little, little tiny tendrils out, I mean, that does seem to me not that impossible to think of that as locomotion. Absolutely. I mean, I find that very easy to accept. I mean, Darwin's experiments, he did this very clever thing where you could actually sort of see how the tendril almost, you know, sense the air to see where it was going to go next. And I think perhaps one of the things that is important is for people to maybe have some experience of actually seeing these plants grow. I mean, you know, if you girls sound like you're keen gardeners, and I am too, you know, when you watch your plants on a daily basis, you do see really quite sensitive experiences going on in those plants. And of course, what mm. Calvo's done is he's set up this in his minimal intelligence laboratory. He's set up this very clever time lapse photography where you can actually get much finer detail than Darwin was able to do with his experiments. And again, I think that, you know, and then he obviously speeds up the time lapse and then he meshes that with an understanding of what's going on at the chemical level within the growth part of the plant. It's kind of coming at the problem from various different um, experimental directions. But yeah, it is hard not to use that kind of language. And actually, I think not to find it quite satisfying language to explain what we think we're observing and what these organisms are experiencing. It reminds me a bit about the way we talk about animals. You know, people have been very, very down on anthropomorphism and stuff when people saying, oh, the elephants look as though they are grieving. But I mean, you know, the elephants kind of are grieving. <laughs> and maybe, you know, when they gather together and they do all the things that look exactly like that. Well, they're certainly expressing attachment and the yeah. disruption of attachment, aren't they? And when the sweet pea is climbing its way up and going round, but it doesn't want to go around that one, it's it's working out what's best for it, I guess. That's what Calvo would argue. Yeah, definitely. Mm. But Lucy, what about what's best for me and the way the sweet peas look in my garden? I'm afraid that's it's not up to you. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure what percentage <laughs> of agency we have, but it's not an 100. No, it's, it's certainly not. Less than 50, I would say. It's fascinating, though, isn't it? I mean, it's fascinating to see that things that actually, as you describe them, as I said, do seem 
quite, for want of a better word, sort of common sense. They are things that we observe, but that there might be this very scientific underpinning to them. Absolutely. Yes, I think so. And I think that that's part of the, you're going to have to rethink what it means to make those kinds of observations and then describe them in a certain kind of language and accept what that might mean for where we think we sit in the environment too. Because the other thing that really, I think, blew my mind when I read this book was actually this idea of, you know, I talked initially about um, how human beings are always the gold standard for consciousness and how not other things don't have it. Well, if they don't have it, when was it in evolutionary history that things started to get it? So, you know, mm. at what point in the human evolutionary story did it start to happen? Which one of our many ancestors back in deep time became conscious? And then obviously I think the idea of consciousness has been expanded way way beyond just, just humans. At what point then do you say, some xyz organism is conscious if you flip that on its head and you say okay if we accept this idea of a cellular basis of consciousness that single-celled organisms demonstrate enough sensitivity to the environment and enough agency within the environment to be thought of as consciousness you don't have to have this big problem of when do you switch it on in evolutionary history. It has, in fact, always been there ever since there's been enough organisation for chemicals to be bounded by a cellular membrane. And that was an incredibly liberating experience to, to rethink the whole history of, of evolution in a way. Mm. Is that what you said about the consciousness being a continuum? It's not just like, you know, everything's going about its business and nothing's conscious at all. And then suddenly, you know, click, there you go. It's not like that at all. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And Calvo is building on other people's work there. But it's just people have been more reluctant to apply it to plants. And he wants to say, no, plants are part of this story, too. Can I just ask you as a final question, where you think then we go next, where that research goes in the very next sort of stage of its development? Well, I think we have to do a lot more work to test out Calvo's ideas. I mean, these are highly controlled experiments done on a very small number of organisms. And so, you know, you've got to be careful how much you extrapolate. And um, science is works best by incremental growth and clear evidence. But science also needs sort of knee jerks every now and again and somebody to say actually let's shake things up so we need his drive and, and the drive of other people who are interested in this we need a lot more solid research to make sure that we are not barking up the wrong tree but I think what I would like to see is that people become open-minded about this and we use that open-mindedness to be more sensitive to the green stuff out there in the world and the refrain about not cutting down the rainforests is, you know, I hardly need to rehearse it with this kind of audience, I'm sure. But if we stop to think about the richness of the individual organisms, as well as the great service they do for the planet by being this amazing green part of the world and the oxygen production and the carbon sink and all that kind of thing, if we could just give them, I think, a, a bit of individual integrity to, to be really amazing organisms in their own right. I think that would be fantastic. And some people will say you don't need to make them into conscious organisms to do that. Maybe a lot of people would say that. 
but I think it might humble us to think that there are other ways of other models of neural integrity in an organism. Mm. They are, as I say, huge ramifications all the way around. But thank you so much for explaining it to us so clearly and so beautifully, Helen. Thank you for talking to us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on the show, how matrimony featured or not in the life and work of George Eliot. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. When George Eliot began living with George Henry Lewis, he was unable to divorce his wife and the couple had to face the disapproval of Victorian society. Whether, given Lewis's belief in free love, they would have chosen to marry is a complex matter. Eliot took his name with Lewis writing to a friend that Marian Evans, Eliot's given name, was extinct. The Marriage Question, a new biography by Claire Carlyle, explores the Institute of Matrimony in both Eliot's life and her work. And Jacqueline Banerjee has reviewed the book in this week's paper and joins us now. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. That idea that I just mentioned of Marian Evans's disappearance, her extinction, when she started a sort of quasi-married life with George Henry Lewis, it's very unsettling, isn't it? But you explained that it had its roots in the couple's shared interest in philosophies of romantic union and specifically Spinoza. Yes, it was her feeling that this was a, a double life, that it would be larger than a single life, not that one would be extinct in it at all, but that together they would be more. But I suppose her old identity would be extinct in some ways, but uh, the idea was doubling rather than cancelling. It was sort of addition rather than yes. dilution. It was a new unit, if you like. And this was fairly kind of widespread, a sort of belief in the kind of philosophy that they were interested in, the couple. Yes. Well, this is the great thing about this new biography. I mean, there have been so many biographies of George Eliot. I think Catherine Hughes said, I mean, this was several years ago when she did her own biography, The Last Victorian. She said that there had been, I think, 38 or 48 previous biographies. I mean, it was coming up to 50. So this had to be something new. And I think it is because it is by an academic philosopher, someone who is very up with all the philosophy that would have been in George Eliot's mind. And she has used that angle 
as an entry into George Eliot. And I think that's how it should be. I mean, again, even further back in literary criticism history, David Daitchi said that this was a, an author who really started to inject an intellectual element into her work. He felt that Dickens and so on hadn't, and that is why she has that um, intellectual feel to her work. What she wants to show is how it's integrated. I mean, it's not there in lumps, so to speak. It's integrated into her whole vision. And that's, I think, what gives this particular biography the edge. Again, it narrows even further, doesn't it, to consider this question, the marriage question. And you describe that situation with Eliot and with Lewis as happening in a society in which you say marriage had become more churchy and that Lewis and Eliot really were living beyond the pale. I wonder what it was like for them, to what extent they were ostracised. Well, Claire Carlyle talks about marriage becoming more churchy. That wasn't my, my own phrase. I think it would have been very difficult, and she felt it very keenly, particularly, of course, the division from her brother, of course, couldn't countenance this. That was it. They were then just estranged at that point. Yes, absolutely. Until her much, much later marriage to John Cross, they were estranged. And that, as you know from the mill on the floss problem with the brother, that hurt her very deeply. So it was, I think it was very difficult for her. But she was so determined. She was so strong. You also say, you know, again, we do know a lot about about George Eliot's life, partly through this extraordinary outpouring of biographies. And we do <laughs> yes. know that she had she had craved this quasi-marriage or cohabitation, marriage of a relationship of cohabitation yes. throughout her life. I mean, and her sort of, you know, as you point out, and Claire Carlyle points out, there was a kind of emotional neediness about her that's a rather sort of subjective word it's a rather value judgment kind of word but there was a way in which she felt she did need another in her life whether that went back to her her childhood or not is, is of course open to debate well that is what Claire Carlyle thinks she thinks that her mother was ill she wasn't given the kind of mothering which perhaps most girls would be her father was very very busy he was an estate manager she didn't have that kind of um, emotional input, except perhaps, I don't know, from her brother. So she, she really did want, she did have what she called heart hunger. That is actually from the mill on the floss. She had heart hunger. She really wanted to have someone else in her life. She wanted that double life. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Heart it hunger. It is. And it was also, it seemed to be expressed, it didn't always have to be, a romantic attachment, because you mentioned that she had a couple of very close friendships with women as well. She just she wanted closeness with someone. Yes, those relationships in both cases, they're very interesting, aren't they? Especially the second one, because um, I think she was being quite pressured into having more than a close emotional relationship, if you like. She had first had this relationship with before their estrangement with Isaac's wife, hadn't she? And then the second friendship that you talk about happens after Lewis's death. She did have close relationships with women, and I was surprised to find her calling herself a spouse of one of them. They were very close relationships, but she backed off in the end, and obviously 
preferred to have a male companion. And you see her having relationships with one after the other. Even her tutor, who taught her Italian and German, she was attracted to him. Then she was attracted to Chapman in when she was writing on the Westminster Review, when she was editing on the Westminster Review, and Spencer, Herbert Spencer. So she seems to have been quite, well, shall I say, serially attracted to the men in her life. Um, she did want to have a relationship with a man. I was so interested in how, you know, you describe how Claire Carlyle traces this through the works. And I was, I was thinking about this in terms of Middlemarch. We talk about all of her works, but the idea of marriage as exactly the opposite of that doubleness that comes about when Dorothea marries Casabon and she thinks, hopes that that's what she's going to have, that union of spirit and soul and body. And I was rereading, it's a book I reread a lot because it just has such sort of depths of kind of comfort available in it, I suppose. But I was rereading that the chapters when they're on honeymoon and in Rome, and she realizes that the, that doubleness is not happening, that there is a kind of aridity in their marriage. And of course, the reader is sort of, you know, it's, I mean, he's the original kind of red flag, isn't he, Casabon? You sort of think, <laughs> for God's sake, don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's suddenly she is aware that it's just not going to be like, and it seems like the most terrible desolation that she experiences. Yes, I think it's not something that Claire Carlyle talks about really how sexual the relationships were she doesn't really talk about that though she gives one thing I really liked about this book for academics anyway is that in the back there are very very good notes copious notes you can read it without them but they're there if you want them and there's another innovation I think as well as an index for the book itself, there is an index for the critics and philosophers that she's discussed. So this is very nice. This gives you stuff that's not in the book. But if you're curious about something, you can probably find it in the notes somewhere and it will be indexed. So that is very useful. Lewis and Elliot's non-marriage is characterised in lots of ways by their shared intellectual interests, isn't it? You have Feuerbach and Hegel, Goethe, yes. Schiller. Yes. Uh, you mentioned on their sort of, uh, you know, their quasi-honeymoon that they go and visit Goethe and Schiller's houses. And How much do you think their beliefs were expressed through the way that they lived? Well, I think a lot, really, because that was how I think her knowledge of philosophers was what in, gave her the strength to live as she did without marriage, without formal marriage. I think that that was very, very important. It does seem as though, I know the book is called The Marriage Question, but the more we talk about it, it feels as though presumably the ideal for George Eliot would have been if she, you know, had met her double, as it were, her soulmate and could have married them. But it's not marriage that she wants is it and as Alex says in in Middlemarch is almost a, a track that says don't get married or, or be really really careful before you get married it's the doubleness not the marriage so that's a, a remarkably radical thing to think really especially for the time isn't it yes you can see in Lydgate and Rosamond for example mm. it could be a very dangerous outcome it was radical in a way but on the other hand you know she was 
very dutiful as a sort of wife to him and as a mother to his children. She fulfilled all the duties of a wife. So, yeah, she wasn't that radical. That's what I'm trying to say. She was radical in not going with the formality of marriage, but she wasn't radical in her acceptance of the duties of a wife. The stepmothering was very important to her, wasn't it? Yes, and she fulfilled that part of her. I mean, partly it was a way of showing that she was a good wife or good companion. I mean, it would do her credit, obviously, if she was seen to be a good mother to the children. But, um, I mean, partly it was her idea, in fact, probably more, that that was part of the duty of a woman. That sounds very old-fashioned now, but I think that's what she thought. She wasn't a feminist. She wasn't what I would call a feminist. There's women there, though, that in her books who have to cast aside what they're doing because they get married, aren't they? That's quite a... She's not expressing a positive feminist thing, i.e., you know, don't get married. But, but as I say, there's all of these strong, clever, independent women who get rather shackled by getting married. Yes. So she's ambivalent about it. But for herself, I think she, she had a very strong sense of duty. I'm not saying she wasn't at all interested in the feminist cause because she, you know, she donated to Girton College, for example. She, she gave books to them. She thought that education for women was absolutely vital. She shows what happens if they don't have it, like Rosamund Vincy, you know, who's good at embroidery and that's about it doesn't have the mental capacity that she would like a woman to have. So, yeah, she did support the woman's cause, but only up to a certain point. I don't, she didn't believe in women getting the vote, for example, which is perhaps surprising. It is surprising. All of her main characters, you'd think they should absolutely have the vote. Mm. What was her reasoning? I mean, what did she think about suffrage in that sense? Well, you just you have to look at Dorothea, for example. The idea is that a woman, through her small acts of daily life, makes the world a better place. I mean, that was how she saw the power of a woman. It's fascinating because it's not how she saw her own power. The work that she did was not, you know, these were not small daily acts of life, no matter how she fulfilled those roles, as you say, of a of, of conventional wifehood it wasn't where the most of her energies went was it well her most of her energies went in writing Mm. and intellectual pursuits which would you know go into her writing I'm interested in other points that Claire Carlyle brings out of, of how early this came up in her work I mean you talk about her analysis for example of Janet's repentance in scenes from clerical life where there's a very unhappy marriage an abusive marriage, and it was clearly something that she was philosophically puzzling around out, the extent to which you should stay in that or not stay in it. Yes, yes. But there again, as I think I said in the review, no marriage vows are broken. That marriage vows are seen to be, well, treacherous, could be treacherous, could have, as Janet did, a very unhappy marriage, but the vows actually aren't broken. So <laughs> Again, it's that, I suppose, ambivalence. But then when you think back to the time, so, you know, it's difficult. One thing that interested me was that she really didn't like Jane Eyre's choice, you know, of leaving 
Rochester at the altar when she found out that he was married. She didn't believe in that. She thought Jane Eyre should have acted differently. Yes, yes, yes. It was the form that she she disliked. There is a fantastic sort of twist to the tale of her relationship with matrimony, as you, you explain, yeah. after Lewis's death. Yes. After all that time of not being married. She very quickly married, didn't she? And a much younger man. Tell us a bit about that. Well, it was extraordinary, really, because he was uh, about 20 years her junior, a great admirer, of course. And this was an interesting part of the book because Claire Carlyle really feels that there were practical reasons for her to have gone into that marriage. For example, that John Cross would write a good biography of her. And, you know, it was quite common in those days for the surviving spouse to somebody like that to write up the life. Claire Carlyle feels that perhaps that was one reason why she, (laughs) as it were, took him on. So she was sort of marrying her potential biographer to kind of, as it were, get him on side. In fact, in the book, it's quite funny, in the book, Claire Carlyle says that her editor didn't like her saying that or implying that. But um, that that is how she seems to have um, felt, that there were practical reasons for her second marriage. It also made her respectable at last, and it might have been relief. And there is this equally this extraordinary talking about the honeymoon in Middlemarch. Oh, Their honeymoon did not go well, to say the very least. And then, of course, the honeymoon with John Cross was a disaster, really, because oh. it's jumping out of the window. That was um, strange. And, and it, it's something that Claire Carlyle doesn't really go into. But again, as I've been saying, if you look in the notes, the, she does discuss the various uh, critical attitudes towards it. So, yes, it, I've said, I think, that it seems like he wanted to wanted out at least <laughs> felt some kind of desperation while while they were on their honeymoon one, one doesn't know why I mean that is you know honeymoons can be a time of great pressure and <laughs> you know as we're aware but that's a very low bar you don't want your spouse to jump out of the window no. to try to get no. away from you do no. you um what does she make of that I wonder I don't know but she got through it which is the wonderful thing. She was very resilient. Is it right that this later marriage then reconciled her to her brother? That may have been one of the great advantages as well. Yes, it did. I mean, she had been accepted largely by more bohemian set, but also by Queen Victoria liked her work very much, you know. She had been accepted. So had she met Queen Victoria? No, I don't think she met her, but she met her one of the princesses, Princess Louise, I think. I'm not sure. But while she was in a state of non-marriedness, as it were. Yes, 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 yes. She was kind of respectabilised by that, presumably. Yes, yes, it did make a difference. She was, but not in the eyes of her brother, unfortunately, not until she actually was married in St George's Hanover Square, where whatever place could be more respectable than that. (laughs) (laughs) And did this later marriage, or this actual first marriage, in fact, did it become after the honeymoon a a happy marriage? Do we know? I think it did. I mean, he seems to have 
I don't want to say looked after her, but he certainly looked up to her. He admired her very much. I think it settled down. They bought a house in Surrey where they lived for a while and um, seemed to have been. It wasn't very long, you see, but she died quite soon. But it seemed to have worked all right. I mean, we never know, do we, really? No, certainly not. Not unless we have, you know, George Eliot to write a novel about it, really, mm-hmm. because that sort of idea of what was was going on. And in, in some ways, her life still, strangely, after all these biographies, seems quite mysterious. Is that yes. something that you feel? Yes, because you can't know these uh, innermost thoughts. You You never can, can you? So, yes, that's why I suppose there have been so many biographies and no doubt there will continue to be. I mean, quite recently we've had this, but before that we've had bits and pieces. We've had uh, Rosemary Ashton writing about the Westminster Review years and um, Catherine Hughes herself has written about, in Victorians Undone, she wrote about her dairymaiding phase (laughs) when she was younger. It's actually about her hand. I don't know if you you know. Tell us about that. Well, it's just about how the experience of being life on an estate or on a farm had gone into her work and how she apparently claimed that her hand, one hand was bigger than the other. But in the end of that um, chapter in Victorians Undone, Catherine Hughes points out that her glove size was actually very small so it sort of puts the kibosh on that theory. It might have been a a marginal size difference in any case. You've said how interesting you found this biography but it does sound that this great shelf full of books about George Eliot this is a welcome addition to it. Oh definitely I mean I read a lot of academic books and review them very rarely sit up late at night reading one of them and I did with this one. I enjoyed it very much. And I suppose that's the best possible recommendation. I think it really is. That's a brilliant recommendation. I was just going to say that actually the, I, the first time I read Middlemarch was very late. I mean, I should have read it ages before that. And I was already working at the TLS. I'm amazed they let you in, Lucy. <laughs> no, I didn't tell them. I certainly didn't tell them. But then I was, we were near Farringdon at the time. I would go to Farringdon and I was right near the end. And I was supposed to be going into work, but I was right near the end of mid-March and I just couldn't do it. So I sat in Farringdon station oh. and finished it off because I couldn't bear to have it on red like that all day. And then when I went in and I said to one of the senior editors, oh, I'm really sorry, sorry I'm late. And then I did confess to her and I said, I've just, I just had to, I just, it was near the end of mid-March. I had to finish it. She was like, oh, yes, of course you did. (laughs) It was a brilliant place to work because that's a good excuse for being late. And it was true. Probably instant promotion, Lucy. (laughs) No, I think it took another hundred years before that. I mean, isn't it wonderful that there's so much intellectual substance in her work and yet, you feel like that mm. speaks to the heart. <laughs> that is the great thing about reading George Eliot. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today about this, as I say, this addition to the literature of George Eliot and her life. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed.
That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Helen Bynum and Jacqueline Banerjee. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. <laughs>